Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine the show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. We continue with part two of our discussion with natural resource businessman Ross Beattie. Ross, thank you for agreeing to come back for more. <laughs> My pleasure, Andrew. Ross, so why is mining important, not only from an economic perspective, but aren't things we grow and dig out of the ground required for all of human survival? Well, of course they are, Andrew. Uh, you know, minerals are a fundamental part of our industrial society, and unless we want to go back and live in caves, you know, we need minerals. It's just the way it is. Uh, whether we need the amount of minerals we're digging up today uh, or the amount of energy we're using today, or a smaller number is uh, not really the point. We, we definitely need minerals, and uh, they have to come from somewhere, and I'm in the business of uh, providing them to society. Well, let's go to the mining business, Ross. What is lacking in the business today from your viewpoint, and what things really need to change? That's a very big question. Things are changing. Things are changing actually very quickly in the mining industry amongst the more public companies. They aren't changing so much with the private companies and the small local companies, and particularly of Scourge today as the millions and millions of local people in different countries in the world who are mining illegally, very primitively, and with tremendous environmental destruction that's going on. So the, the, the world of kind of public companies is, is having quite a revolution in terms of its focus on not just mining, but, but how to mine as well as they can with a small and environmental footprint with as little CO2 as possible, uh, CO2 emissions as possible, with as good environmental and social governance as possible. And there's a tremendous effort being made by companies that are, that are large and, and, and medium-sized public companies because investors demand this of them. Investors demand this, uh, local communities demand it, environmentalists in those regions that those companies are working in demand it, and banks demand it. So it's just part of doing, you know, being a good corporate citizen today. And actually, if you look after the environment and your social situation, those communities and the workers that you employ, you actually make more money. It's a, it's a, it's a direct, direct line to the bottom line. And uh, if you don't, you get into a mess. People blockade your vines. People, you might have spills and that costs a lot of money. You have, you have health or, or labor problems. You have strikes. You have fines from local governments if you have, if you have a bad safety record. So it's just it's just good business to do this. The, the, the part that bothers me is where you have in, in many countries a sort of a, a double standard. You have tremendous regulation and scrutiny on public companies working in those countries, multinationals or 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 otherwise. And, and you have very little scrutiny on domestic companies who are uh, doing really bad things to the environment and not very good things to their employees and the communities. And yet they just seem to get away with it. It's just the world we live in. We have these double standards. But, you know, from our business standpoint, you, you do what you can. You work as hard as you can to be a, a good citizen, corporate citizen. And uh, at the same time, you try to make a living in the mining business. It's, it's a tough world today, and it is changing quickly. Well, Ross, I want to move over to jurisdictions for a moment. Can you give us a few countries you've not been to? And while you're thinking about that, many places around the world can be outright nasty to be in, let alone trying to operate a business in. So we've seen many unfortunate events in the mining business, whether it be health and safety, security, unrest, 
take your pick. It yep. really is reality out there. If you are willing, can you tell the audience about a notable event that was of significance to you in your time overseas, maybe in the younger days, some kind of an event that uh, really caught you thinking about life and thinking about safety and well-being? <laughs> oh, my goodness, Andrew. I, I could go on for hours. I mean, I've had both the, the great fortune and, uh, and I've chased it myself, so it's not been just luck of working internationally all over the world, like everywhere. You know, Pan American itself, uh, my silver company has operations in five countries, uh, my gold company in a couple, my renewable energy company in, in half a dozen. But I've had investments just about everywhere in the world. And I've worked personally just about everywhere in the world. I've been to more than 140 countries in my life. And I've, I kind of just chase this because I love to travel. I love to see different things and meet different people and, and try to understand how people work. Um, because mining is a global industry, you know, you can't choose to put your mind in a nice place. You, you kind of have to go where the minerals are. And, and I've chased that uh, very actively. So I've had crazy experiences. I've had a lot of near-death experiences in riots, helicopter crashes, plane crashes, all kinds of uh, getting, you know, cerebral malaria, just about dying, getting toxoplasmosis and having just about dying. Like a lot of nasty things have happened to me, but here I am still alive. And I'm, uh, you know, I'm kind of more, I guess, richer for the experience. And generally speaking, it's been successful. You know, generally speaking, I've had pretty pretty positive experiences where I've worked. I won't say you asked me to single out one. Uh, the one that comes to mind most most quickly is uh, having basically wasted four years of my life working in Russia in the mid '90s, right after soon after we got Pan American Silver going. There was a huge, you know, one of the world's biggest uh, formerly producing silver mines in eastern Russia and Siberia that was being auctioned by the Russian government, and we. We bid and we won the auction, and then we spent three years, about $35 million, as part of a $135 or $140 million capital program to get the mine going again. And it was going to be a really world-class mine that was going to position Pan American as the world's leading silver mining company. So there was a, it was a high-reward project, rather low technical risk, but a lot of country risk. And unfortunately, the country risk bit us. Uh, we took the project right through you know, feasibility into construction. We had all our financing lined up, World Bank and other banks lined up, and we put our uh, fair bit of money in ourselves, about $35 million of our own equity. And we were a small company then, and every penny of that we had to raise with difficulty. And then, just to kind of make a long story short, we were attacked by a Russian company, and they stole the project from us. They absolutely stole it, and uh, we, we kind of were so sick of working in Russia by the, by the end of that four-year period that we kind of, we kind of just said, okay, you can, you can have this, but we want to get our money back. And and we ended up getting about $40 million of the theory, more than we eventually invested, but we wasted four years of our life. And that was a case where really the, the kleptocracy in Russia, it did bite us. And I don't regret the money so much. I regret the time that I wasted working there. It was a tremendous opportunity cost because we could have perhaps done better had we focused, say, on Mexico or Peru, which have much, much more pleasant places to work. They don't have that overhanging threat of somebody just basically stealing a project from you. But this was the case of Russia for, for most of those years. In fact, it still is today. Just how hard it is to work there, what a difficult investment climate is. And, and that's basically why no mining company worth its, you know, no foreign mining company except one or two uh, work in Russia. They work elsewhere. That's definitely the worst experience. But boy, I've had a lot of great experiences too. Well, I appreciate you sharing that story, and it Russia is certainly an interesting case, and not too many people try their hand there, even those that are uh, people that can take on these hard jurisdictions, and, and you're certainly one of those people that has been able to accomplish that throughout your ventures. Well, I want to move to Central and South America for a moment. So we've got challenges with some countries here. 
Venezuela's an outright train wreck, and sadly, you've got ice starting to crack in places like Nicaragua, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. Bolivia is always a bit of an, uh, of an experiment. Now you've got a few protests popping up to correct irresponsible government actions. What jurisdictions do you like in this region now? And are you of the opinion, Ross, that when it comes to mining in general, that governments get grabby at the tops of cycles and they come back with open arms during bear cycles? Oh, yes. No question about that. The, the, the world sort of does work in, in cycles where, you know, you get a period of high commodity prices, companies are making money and governments want to grab a bunch of that. They make the grab just as the, the cycle turns and companies have to flounder and, and just try to survive when the market goes down. Company, uh, countries make even less tax revenue than expected. They realize, oh, they've, they've killed the goose that, that lays the golden egg. Let's try to revive the goose and get it going again. And it, so the cycles kind of repeat themselves. It's just one of those difficulties in our business. And there's a lot of difficulties. Mining is a very, very risky game. And I've worked all over Latin America, every single country, uh, directly or indirectly. And I can say, you know, from my standpoint, you can't be too choosy about country because sometimes you have a country that's a train wreck, the way Peru was, say, during the 80s. And all of a sudden, you got a strong president, a clean house. They change the laws, make it more investor friendly which is what Fujimori did in Peru in 1992. And all of a sudden, the country turned from being a pariah to being one of the most successful places to build and operate mines in the entire world. Literally, for the last 30 years, it hasn't changed, or 25 years. It's still a great place to work. So you, you, can't, <laughs> you can't be too picky. Bolivia has had a terrible reputation, and yet we've had a mine there now for 20 years. It's been a very successful mine. We've, we've pulled a lot of you know, good dividends out. We've invested a lot of money. The mines run well. The people have worked well for us. So my strategy is basically trying to have a diversified portfolio so that you can have, you know, it, it, one year, one country might be tough and another country might be good. And the next year might be the exact opposite. But there have been times when even countries like Canada and Australia and the United States have, have, made, have made it very, very difficult for, for mining to succeed. And, and other years, you know, they're exactly the opposite. So you really have to take the long view, be diversified, and try to work inside the system instead of, you know, rebelling against it. But everywhere in Latin America, I could reel off the countries that, that have, have been good and uh, countries that have been tough. I'll say Argentina has been tough, uh, even though it's a wonderful country. It's just a real tough place to work. It's uh, for all kinds of reasons. Chile used to be wonderful. Now it's really getting more difficult. It's getting more difficult for a number of reasons. Brazil was more difficult five years ago. It's easier to work in today. And so, um, as I said, that's the strategy that's worked for me, and, and I'll keep doing that. I tend to focus in Latin America now because I really know it well and, and understand it. I'm, I'm not much of an African. I wouldn't go near the Russia, Russia Federation countries. China's tough for me. India's tough. There's a lot of places that I, yeah, maybe it's just my age. I'm, I'm not as risk accepting as I used to be. But the Latin America's been wonderful, and I'll, I'll go there any day of the year. Except Venezuela. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to cover one more. So the Lumina Group, as you know, uh, has a significant foothold in Ecuador. Do you find the opportunity in Ecuador similar to the time when you started to invest in Peru in the, in the early 1990s? What are the key parts that really checked all the boxes at Ecuador for you? Yeah, that's kind of the way Ecuador was when we first got going there. And I think it was 2015. You know, the gold price was low. Uh, Ecuador had been a pariah for 10 years uh, when the government made laws just impossible for mining companies, changed the investment climate from what had been quite good to quite bad. 
the country itself has a fabulous mineral endowment. It has gold and copper and all kinds of metals. It's very, very rich in minerals, but it's had no foreign investment. So there were wonderful opportunities for companies that were prepared to take a bit of risk and, and with a new president and uh, hoping that things were going to change back in, say, 2015. And so we went in there and we acquired a, a whole bunch of ground and, uh, and one gold deposit that was already known. And uh, we've been working there for the last four years, four or five years. It's been very successful technically, but I have to say the country still hasn't really turned the corner. Uh, the government is very supportive of mining. Uh, they need mining because they've, they've lost oil and gas revenues significantly from what they were like five or 10 years ago. But the local people still are very nervous, I'm going to say. They're very worried about the environmental impact of mining. They don't have any mines in the country of any modern nature. And so they, a lot of it is just sort of not understanding what a good mine can do for an economy. I mean a mine that's well run. They see the illegal miners uh, that are just ripping apart the environment, polluting it like crazy. And they say, we don't want that. But they don't really know what a modern mine is. Now, luckily, the last four years has seen quite a bit of development in, in Ecuador of, by different companies. Lundin Gold has a big gold deposit there that's just coming into production now. That's going to be a, a real a bellwether for the industry. If they do it well, that's going to be really great. And then there's a Chinese company that has, has just finished uh, constructing a large copper mine that's just started production. And we hope that they also have decent environmental and social governance rules that will make that mine you know, reasonably well uh, received by the local communities and the country. So I hope that these demonstrate to the Ecuadorian people that you can have mining that coexists with, you know, reasonable environmental and social policies. But it remains to be seen. In Ecuador has a very large indigenous population and they're quite uh, militant. And so they just uh, about two or three weeks ago had a lot of disturbance when the government reduced the fuel subsidies and it caused a tremendous amount of social disturbance, which uh, spilled over into the mineral projects that are happening there. So that was not nice to see. And uh, luckily, the government reversed the fuel subsidy uh, withdrawal. And I think tried to convince the protesters that, you know what, they, they have to get money from somewhere. It doesn't grow on trees and uh, they can't borrow anymore internationally. They're kind of maxed out there. The Chinese are nervous about lending them more money and uh, they've got no oil revenue like they used to have. So, you know, they've got to replace that with something. And you just can't give people fuel subsidies without somebody having to pay the price. And so hopefully they're going to understand that they're going to have to change their policies on industrial development and bring in, you know, good international companies that know how to mine effectively and without polluting the environment. And uh, and that's hopefully what, what we'll be uh, beneficiaries of. Right. Absolutely. And uh, certainly it appears that the Illumina Group, one of the top concession holders that I'm aware of, as well as, of course, I think you guys were all at the same place at the same time when, when uh, Keith Barron was also going after a bunch of property as well. So certainly sure. an interesting set of times, Ross, and uh, excited to see how things progress there with the, with the projects. Now let's move on to some other key topics. I want to ask you about management compensation. Ross, how do you balance compensation during bad and good times in the market while maintaining proper exposure to the talent you need to help run a business? Well, I have my kind of rant on this subject, which comes from a view that public company market in the mining industry has a flawed compensation policy, generally speaking. So I maintain that a lot of the top executives are overpaid relative to how much, you know, how, sort of how hard they work, how what they do for shareholders. But it's, uh, it's because there are comparatives always done and companies always try to hire their top executives and pay them according to the average paycheck of the industry. Well, some companies pay their executives a little bit more than that. 
And as soon as that happens, the average goes up. And it just it's a sort of a spiral upwards and upwards that results in quite unrealistically high uh, compensation levels. So that's my general view. People are overpaid in the industry. But of course, what do you do if you're running a company like, like we are with Equinox Gold or Pan American or Lumina? And you want to hire the very best people. You know, you can't pay them the lowest quartile of salaries in the industry. You've got to be competitive. So it, it's just a vicious spiral. And the people who lose, quite frankly, are the, are, the, are the shareholders. Because, you know, a lot of money gets pulled out of earnings and gets put into compensation and, and general overhead. Well, if you have five companies that are all paying their executives a lot, that all produce 100,000 ounces of gold, Instead of having one company that produces 500,000 ounces of gold, one management team getting paid, you know, a little bit more maybe, but it certainly isn't five times the companies that produce 100,000. You have a lot of money siphoned off into into overhead that that should more properly, more efficiently go to shareholders. Anyway, that's my rant. It's I, I tend to agree with a lot of investors in that in that sense, but uh, it's a very very hard thing to get out of now that that's an established industry uh, compensation strategy. Well, I believe your position is correct, and that's where my my position uh, lies as well. When it comes to your capital for this sector and the time it takes to realize value, Ross, what keeps your eye on the prize and a certain positive outcome? Is it conviction, patience, timing, certain market events? What does it for you? Well, there's no such thing as a certain positive outcome because this industry is so risky. It's so risky. There's so much risk in it. And the risk is both things under your control and it's a lot of things beyond your control. And I'll just give a few examples like metal price. Nobody really knows what's going to happen a year, a month, a week from now in terms of metal prices. If they go up, the company does well. If they go down, the company is going to do poorly. No matter how strong the management team is, no matter how good the project is, the stock price is going to go down. That's not a successful outcome. But, you know, again, if you have enough uh, diversification in your portfolio. You have you have enough eggs in, in enough baskets. If you buy companies that have certain ingredients in common, you're likely to outperform. Ingredients in common include strong management, where you can really trust the people involved to work as hard as they can for shareholders. Number two, you know, good projects. So I look very hard at the quality of the project. If it's an exploration play, you know, how big it is, what are the risk factors involved, Where's the country it's, it is? What, where inside a country it is? Because a lot of times, it's not just the country. It's the location specifically inside the country that that project's at. Some are good, some are bad. I look at the details of the technical reports. I look at the capital that's needed. If it's a small company that needs a huge amount of capital, it's one thing. If it's a small company that needs just a little bit of capital, it's a very different thing. I look at the, qual- I look at the market cap of the company and say, is it a fair market price or is the stock overvalued or undervalued? There's a whole bunch of factors that go into making an investment decision. And I, as I said, I, I mean, you have to take a, a long view. You have to try to get your timing right in this business. Uh, you have to try to look at commodity cycles and sort of say, well, where are you in the cycle? Because when the market price, when the gold price or, or, or copper price goes up, every single company that's exposed to those metals goes up. Some do outperform. Those are the ones you want. But basically, if you get your cycle right, you're going to make money. And if you get your cycle wrong, you're going to lose. As tide goes out, all the ships are left high and dry. So those are some things that I look at. Would you say that in general, are you typically early and is that really the best place to be when it comes to timing these these market decisions? Yeah, for sure. You know, you never really know when the market's going to turn, but because we are in a cyclical world, you definitely want to get in there at the at the lower part of the cycle and you want to get out at the higher part of the cycle. And I can never say when we're at the bottom or the top, but I can certainly say when we're 
close to the bottom or close to the top. I mean, it sounds simple to say that, but but if you look, if you go back to kind of my investment horizon goes back, you know, a few decades, and I can just point to times when, you know, it, there was so much hatred for the sector. There was so much, so many people have lost so much money over a number of years that prices were just, you know, companies were trading at such crazy discounts that you just knew it was a good time to buy. It's when nobody likes the sector, when everybody hates it, when there's capitulation all over the place, that's when you want to be buying. It's very hard to do. It's easy to say, very hard to do. But you want to be buying at the bottom of the market and selling at the top when most people are doing the opposite. I kind of tend to follow the Swiss investors. When the Swiss start throwing in the towel, you know it's kind of close to the bottom. And when they start (laughs) buying, it's just about at the top. They're just so inherently conservative that they just seem to get it wrong on both ends. But you've got to be courageous. You've got to be contrarian. And that strategy has worked really, really well for me. And I can point to specific times, just even the last 10 years. I mean, at the end of uh, 2008, early 2009, you know, it was a license to print money by investing in the space because everything was free. Everything was cheap. Then the then the commodity companies just skyrocketed and didn't double or triple. Many of them, including the large cap stocks like like tech and BHP, they went up ten times. These are large cap stocks in the space of two years. They went up ten times. That's that's a pretty good performance for a blue chip stock. And then of course 2011 came along. Things were overblown for a whole bunch of reasons. The growth was slowing down in China. You just you know that was the top. And gold you know hit a top of nineteen hundred dollars an ounce just. Looking, looking at gold as one commodity. Five years later, by the end of, uh, or even four years later, by the end of 2015, early 2016, gold is at 1050. At 1050, what was going on? Gold companies had been crushed. Valuations were super, super cheap. Exploration stocks were free. It was just a great time to come in and buy again. And I did that. I went long on a whole bunch of different stocks. And uh, it was a very happy story in 2016. And then we kind of had some bubbles for, for a couple of years, kind of lumpy markets up and down. And then all of a sudden, we're back in a gold market today. And I, I just sort of think we're sort of about maybe we're in the fourth inning of uh, the gold game right now. I definitely don't think it's the top of the market today. Um, it's definitely not the beginning either. We're sort of mid-cycle somewhere. But I think there's still lots of money to be made by gold interested investors. And, and if I wanted to invest in other companies, I'd look at copper quite closely. Copper, maybe some of the battery metals now, which are really, really cheap, and uh, and, and, and pick a few companies and, and invest in those. Well, Russ, I agree. And I want to follow on with uh, what we just started to talk about here. Um, I have a list of assets in front of me that I want to speed through. And I want you to state your position with regards to each, either positive, neutral, or negative. You can interchange that for bearish or bullish if you'd like. Let's start with copper. Can you just give us your positive, neutral, or negative view? Positive. I'm definitely positive on copper at this point. It's trading around 260 a pound. The copper market is heavily influenced by what's happening in China. And China's moving from an infrastructure-dominated economy to a consumer-dominated economy. It will use a, a lot less of all metals than the old uh, the old uh, uh, infrastructure market, but it will still need a lot of copper, and so will the rest of the world as we become more electrified, as we switch from uh, internal combustion technology to to battery technology for cars, buses, and uh, and trucks, and so on. As we generate more renewable energy, all of this is copper dominant. That uh, uses a, a much much greater amount of copper than than traditional sources of electricity and uh, and transportation. So I really like copper for those reasons. On a global scale, uh, copper 
you know, copper could easily go back over $3 a pound. And, and when that happens, you're going to see that the established copper companies like First Quantum and, and Tech and, and companies that have leverage to copper, they're, they're all going to do really well. So copper would be one metal that I, I would be very bullish on. Okay. And for the sake of time, Ross, let's, let's speed it through here. Uh, just give me your positive, neutral, or negative. The next one's gold. Positive. Silver. Positive. Platinum. At current prices, uh, neutral. Palladium. Because it had a heck, it's had a heck of a run. They've both had, well, especially palladium, sorry. Uh, platinum, I, I might even be bearish on platinum, but palladium, neutral. Zinc. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I have to say negative uh, because of the amount of zinc that's in the world. And the, <laughs> it's just been a tough metal for, for decades. Nickel. Uh, neutral. It would have been positive a year ago, but nickel's had a pretty good run, and so today I'm 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 neutral. Good fundamentals, but you know there's lots of nickel out there too. Water. Water it depends where you are. Uh, generally speaking, bullish, but not everywhere. Potash. I'm negative on potash. There's been a lot of new potash supply come in the market, and I think that the farms are going to be more efficient using potash than they have been in the last uh, while. Vanadium. I'm very positive on vanadium with one caveat. The vanadium market today is 100, almost 100% levered to the use of vanadium in steel. But if we develop large-scale vanadium redox batteries for renewable energy uh, production, the vanadium market is going to be very, very strong for a long time to come. Oil. Negative. Lithium. Uh, neutral. Neutral. Metallurgic coal. Neutral. Cobalt. Cobalt's a tough one. I would say bullish. I, I could go on for a long time about cobalt. I'm just going to say bullish. <laughs> yeah. Natural gas. Uh, natural gas neutral. Net neutral. It's a switch. It's a uh, it transition fuel, better than coal, but ultimately it will be phased out as we reduce our CO2 consumption and uh, get more into renewables. Rare earth elements. Bullish. And last, uranium. Uh, I can only say neutral on uranium. I, I, I like nuclear power, but I think it's too expensive compared to where renewables are today and therefore won't be a driving part of the new economy in terms of energy source. Okay, and I'll have a follow-up on that in a moment, Ross. So we just <laughs> covered we covered a lot of ground. Uh, very interesting and really appreciate you running through that. So let's let's keep moving here. I want to move to cash, leverage, and capital allocation. First, can you tell us the importance of having cash and when does it make sense to leverage up using debt? This is, a, again, a, a question where you, you have uh, many different kinds of answers. And so the big answer there is it depends. Depends on what kind of business you're in. As you know, I've been both in the mining industry and also the renewable energy industry. So in the mining industry, it's good to have a lot of cash and it's bad to have a lot of debt. Why? Because markets can turn on you overnight with nothing you can do about them. If, if you get a bear market in, in metals, you're going to be losing money. And it's not, there's nothing like having uh, a lot of cash that makes you stronger than your neighbors and able to be opportunistic to, to build your business in, in those tough times. If you have a lot of debt, you have significant risk of going bankrupt. So mining companies shouldn't have a lot of debt at any time. But I have to say, when markets are tough, if you can borrow and sustain uh, interest payments and debt repayments with, say, cash flow at the bottom of market, then you will be in great shape when uh, markets turn, metal prices go up, your stock price goes up, because when you want to finance in, with equity by selling shares to, to raise capital is when your stock is at a high price. 
And that always happens when you have good times. For example, last year in Equinox Gold, we borrowed heavily when the gold price was low and we were just kind of getting going. We had a very low share price. We borrowed heavily to build a mine because I knew that when that mine was running well, I was also hoping the gold price was going to go up, which it has. And I knew when that mine was running well, we, our stock price would be higher and we would be able to repay some of that debt by selling equity at a much higher price and therefore much less dilution to shareholders. So that's the mining side. Uh, as much cash as you can have with little debt, generally speaking, there are exceptions. depends on the time. Renewable energy is a whole different game. Renewable energy or, or most forms of electricity generation, really you're a utility and you you have these long-term projects where you have long-term contracts. And in our case, we had some contracts where we, we had 40-year contracts to sell our electricity. So we really knew very accurately how much electricity we were going to produce. And we had contracts, specific price contracts. We knew in literally 40 years, where we, we borrowed for 40 years, we had energy contracts to sell for 40 years, and we could predict our, our profitability for that period. Well, when you have that kind of predictability, long-term uh, debt, uh, project finance long-term debt is a smart way to go. And we we would actually borrow sometimes 100% of the cost of building those those wind farms or, or hydro projects because they generated this long-term stream of cash that was just didn't have the cyclical variability the mining industry has. And so, you know, we were able to get a lot of exposure to a lot of projects by borrowing with very little use of equity, uh, which is our most precious and high-cost commodity in that company. And so it, it was the exact opposite endpoint to mining, where you want to pile on the debt and get exposure to all kinds of projects, uh, whereas mining, you want to minimize the use of debt, and, and especially in the earlier stage projects like exploration or, and, and feasibility stage. Well, thank you for the insights on that, Ross. I want to move on to uh, allocating your investing capital to the sector. How concentrated are you in terms of positions, and what allocation and rough percentage terms do you use for these positions? Well, you know, Andrew, I'm, I, I mean, this is my business. I am very familiar with the risks and the numbers, and I can read a, a resource report really well. I mean, it's, it's, it's what I've, I've been all over the world. I've been to hundreds of mines. I just know the game intimately. So I've always done best in things that I know most, know most about. And I really have to say I focus 100% of my investing in, uh, in, in this resource space because it's done so well for me. Um, I don't know much about oil and gas. I don't know much about tech of, of any kind. I don't know anything about real estate. So it's just, I just don't get into those things. And, and I'm not the average person, though, because I have lived this business so much, and I can really assess good and bad and ugly in this one little box. But, you know, that most people aren't like that. They're, they're generalists, and, and they kind of have to look at this business as one box of many that they look at. Um, so, so I'm not a very good person to, uh, to make any kind of general statements for the average investor. It's just what's worked for me. And inside my box, the, the thing that I've always done very best on is investing in my own companies. You know, they've always done best because I can't, I, you know, I invest in my own stuff mostly and it's, it's the stuff I work on. And I know the people helping me and I know the projects and, you know, they've always done best. And that includes the renewable energy game that, that I invested exclusively, actually, in, in Altera that actually turned out pretty well. Ross, what do you look at when you decide to write a check for someone in this natural resource sector? Are you settled with the people that are who can do in this business, or are you still on the lookout for new potential stars in this sector? I've gone through phases, Andrew, where I've been my own developer. I put all my money in my own stuff, and then I segued out for a while and became an investor looking at other people's projects. 
And then I'm, right now I'm back in doing my own thing, investing in Lumina Gold, Luminex, Equinox Gold, and Pan American almost exclusively. So when I was an investor, I was, I was looking at the usual things that people should look at, the quality of management, the quality of the project, how much cash they had, what their aspirations were and how achievable they were, and generally speaking, the risk envelope around the project that they, they were promoting, the country, the location, the, the size, the, you know, the, the need for capital. All of those things are important to making an investment decision. And on the whole, it, it's worked out pretty well for me. Plus, of course, the commodity. You have to get your commodity right. How should an investor approach buying assets that are either in production or near production versus buying optionality type plays like undeveloped deposits that are out of the money? How do you, how do you think an investor should look at that? The optionality plays are great if you're buying at the very bottom of the market. I had a couple of my first silver company, Pan American, was like that in the early days. I, I had a copper business that was like that. They just made it like gangbusters when the, the copper price and the silver price rose. You know, if you have a, a lot of ounces, even though they're uneconomic at a, at a low gold price, uh, that company is going to be worth a lot if, if the gold price rises, as long as the project's real. But at the wrong time in the cycle, that's a terrible uh, strategy because you need to make that strategy work. You need to have the metal price go up. Uh, if you buy those companies when the metal price is high, it's, it's a very low, a very high risk uh, situation and I think a failing strategy. Then you move on to the more exploration plays. And if you invest in an exploration play, it had better be a good one. Because as again, you only have one successful play out of maybe a thousand. But when you have a successful one, it's, it's, it's great because you have this fabulous run that repeatedly has generated returns of you know, 10x, 20x, 30x from initial investments. High risk, but very high reward if it works. But you'd better get it right because 9 out of 10 or 99 out of 100, actually, you might invest a dollar and it might go to 10 cents. So that's high risk, high return stuff. Uh, wonderful run, so that's the real value adding part of the business. But development plays are different. If you buy a development play that's already had a big run, then usually the share price suffers and you don't have much joy on the capital, capital gain side until it actually, one of two things happens. Either the, the project is put into production, that is occasionally successful, or alternatively, the company is actually bought by somebody else. And then you have a happy ending when a larger company will buy that project and you'll have an opportunity to sell when all shareholders sell. And that's, uh, that's for a project that's really successful. So those, again, are fairly rare, but they are not uncommon. And uh, I've certainly had more than my share of, of happy endings with, with companies I've invested in because I've tried to get... I've tried to focus on those kind of companies in the development stage that will be bought out by large companies. And then moving up to the producing companies, again, much lower risk, but not as high return potential because usually they're pretty well valued. Again, you, get, you have to look at a lot of details of the companies, the, the uh, diversification. They have the stability of management, stability of, of balance sheet, of the quality of the project, the location of the project, all of those things factor into how well that company is going to do, but they're much lower risk building a, buying a company that's already producing. And Ross, following on with gold, what are your expectations for the gold price going out over the next few years? And with that likely price increase, how do you see acquisitions hmm. to feed that growth you have planned for some of the ventures you are involved with? Do you see that there is still time for these targets at low prices? Today is, is a funny time in the market, actually. It's, it's quite an unusual time in my investing experience. 
because you have a very different world of investors. You don't have the high risk early stage investors like you used to have, you know, 20 years ago, even 10 years ago. So even though the metal price, like gold, let's just look at gold, for example, even the gold price is actually pretty good today. The value of the junior market is really beat up. And that's because a lot of investors that used to invest in those companies just aren't there today. You have a lot more people putting the money into ETFs. You have a lot of fund investment that is run by robots that don't have any interest in looking at value or, or expiration potential or any of that stuff. And they just don't go down marketing to these juniors. So the juniors are really lacking investment capital today. And there's some really great value opportunities in a bunch of junior companies and junior explorers, junior developers, and junior producers. It's just where the market seems to be today. And it's quite anomalous in my uh, investment experience. But, you know, on the whole, when you have uh, a time like we've had where gold has gone up, you know, $400 an ounce, all, a little bit more than that in the last five years, you know, you'd expect these companies to be worth a lot more, and they're not. So, so I sort of see today being a pretty good investment world for those investors interested in this side of the market. It's, it's a good time. There's good opportunity. And I think that will continue to present good opportunities for capital gains for investors over the next, say, two or three years. Ross, uh, I wanted to ask you also with regards to the growth strategy at current gold prices, and I believe this is kind of related to Equinox. Uh, do you still see that there are some good prices out there for assets that companies that are looking to grow like Equinox with big growth ambitions uh, would be looking still to, to purchase at good prices? Yes, thank heavens, I think there are. And it's to some degree related to my answer to the last question that there's a market today where investors just aren't pricing these small gold producers and small gold explorers and developers, you know, the way they might have a few years ago. The gold price has gone up a lot, but these, the share prices haven't. So that's a good opportunity both for investors and for potential acquirers like, like Equinox Gold. Equinox has got a very ambitious mission of trying to become a one million ounce gold producer in the next few years. The only way it's going to get there is by developing its existing assets and by buying new ones. And so we are acquisitive and we are very Quite frankly, I'm very pleased that uh, you know valuations are lower than I might have expected them because that presents a great opportunity for us. Now, Ross, as you know, uh, you know any savvy investor out there can do some basic research and come up with a number of equity names that you've backed with the BD stamp of approval. I want to run through not all of them, but I want to run through a few of them and just get your brief insights as to why you got involved. And I want to start with Orca Gold. Okay, well, Orca Gold is uh, is run by a friend of mine, Rick Clark, so you've got a, a thumbs up on management. Um, he's a very smart guy. He's done really well for shareholders in the past. It's got a very good group of investors. Lucas Landin is the largest shareholder. Lucas is a smart guy. He invests in good things. You have a really great project. Uh, well, a good project. I'm not going to say it's world-class, but it's a pretty darn good one. I've been to Sudan myself. I've seen it, and uh, I like the project. It's got an opportunity to be for a happy ending, I think, with uh, the sale to a larger company at some point in the cycle. The, the knock on Orca, of course, is its location. Sudan is not exactly uh, New York. And uh, it's got a reputation for being a tough place to work. Probably doesn't deserve it, really, but it, it's got a reputation. It's had some civil unrest. It's got a, it had a dictator for many years. It had a civil war. All those things scare away investors. And the result of that is the stock's really, really cheap. I like cheap. I, I don't like cheap if it goes to zero. But I don't think Orca will. I think it'll be bought out at some point in the next uh, couple of years. And in the meantime, uh, I think you can trust management and know that they're trying to work for shareholders. Agreed. Uh, next one, Galantis Gold. 
Oh, well, Galantis is a, a footnote for me. I, I bought Galantis because I thought that uh, I had a big stake in Dalradian right next door, and I thought Dalradian would buy it because they, uh, I just thought, it, I just thought that that would happen, and they didn't do it. So I was wrong, and uh, my investment thesis, my investment thesis for any Galantis doesn't exist any longer. Uh, I can't sell it because it's a liquid, so I'm just stuck with it. I, I, it's, uh, it was a mistake I made, and that's the way it goes. Amerigo Resources. Amerigo, uh, again, a real nice copper play in, uh, in a stable place, uh, more or less stable anyway. In Chile, um, it's a kind of an annuity because all they do is they extract uh, copper from the waste stream of a huge underground mine that's run by Codelco, uh, El Teniente, and I think it's very low risk. Uh, I got in very, very cheaply. It's been, a, for me, a, a real home run. I, I've recovered my original investment, you know, five or ten times over already. So the rest of the stock I've got is is, is free, and I'm just going to hold on to it for, for the long term. I, I like the company, and uh, I think it's going to do well. Ozino oh, Resources. Ozino oh, is a case where I met the manager. Uh, I met the CEO of that company before he started Ozino, and I was really impressed with him. He, I, I met him actually through my Ecuador involvement, and I really like them, and uh, Hyatt Don, his name is, and I just thought, well, you know, any, anything this guy does is probably going to work out, and, and he offered me uh, a big position in his, his company that he was just beginning, working in Namibia, which I know, it's a nice country, and I just, you know, it's, it's uh, you, you, you back people, I uh, helped him with his early stage work, and it's it's worked out, you know, reasonably well so far, but it's a high-risk company, and, uh, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. As long as he does what he, he says he's going to do, that's all I care about. He 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 tells me he's gonna you know he's gonna take my money and put it into my expiration. So far he's done that, and I back people like that. It, it, the the project may be a dog ultimately, it may be an investment failure, but but that's okay. That's why you give people this this kind of money and you, you hold your nose and and uh, and hope hope it all works out. They don't always work out, but uh, but he's a really nice guy and uh, so far they've had early stage success and I I'm rooting for him. North Arrow Minerals. Same kind of thing. Uh, North Arrow was uh, an exploration speculation up in the way up north in, in northern Canada as a diamond play. It's my first, almost my only diamond exploration project I've, I've ever invested in, but it was super cheap, run by a nice guy. Uh, Irish Thomas actually got me into it. I like Irish, he knows diamonds a lot. And uh, again, a pure exploration speculation that, that most of these don't work out. And, and so far, it's been very neutral. You know, I, I can't say it's been a, a big win, but. Uh, I'm there for the long term. Condor Gold. Condor Gold. A lot of these you're naming are things that I have big positions in because I haven't been able to get out of them, even though I might have wanted to. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, the stuff that I have successfully got out of, you don't see, but there's been a lot of them that, that have been very happy stories. Condor has been a little frustrating because I kind of like the deposit. The price I got in at was fairly cheap. Um, but it's been a little frustrating because the country's been a little topsy. There's been all sorts of social stress in Nicaragua. And the project has had some social problems. They had to move some people away. And uh, it's been a little more complicated than I'd expected. The project is still good. The, the CEO is, isn't, I'm going to say, the most uh, well-thought-of guy in the world, in, in England especially, where he lives. He's a decent guy. I don't mind him. But, you know, it just hasn't been a big win so far. Uh, we'll see what happens there. I'm going to hold reserve judgment on that one. 
Thanks for working through the list here, Ross. Now, of course, no need to mention Pan American silver, which of course is an accomplishment of great proportions and is really the gold standard for the entire silver mining business. And of course, uh, we've already highlighted Lumina and Luminex, uh, and of course, Equinox Gold, obviously, are the, are the big focuses that I've uh, come yeah, across for, sure. for what you're up to. Um, for sure. Uh, let's see here, Ross. I, I want to ask you just one follow on. Uh, and I don't know if you've looked at the supply demand fundamentals recently, but have you examined your position on the uranium mining sector? If you have a view, what is it? And will, if it's positive, will you be looking to finance any existing uranium jockeys to express your view? Thank you, Andrew. And I, I don't know if uh, if I need to remind listeners if they heard the, the last segment that I, I talked about my views on nuclear power and development. And, and I, I'm very... Um, I'm I'm kind of frustrated because nuclear power it's clean it's relatively green it has no CO2 emissions it's it's a base load power source so it's a real it should be a real solution for a lot of the world that doesn't have good renewable energy the problem with nuclear uh, electricity generation is it's super expensive it's a really 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 expensive because you have to protect the whole system from the radioactivity that's emitted when you generate electricity so that expense means it just can't compete today against natural gas and coal in some places where coal is still still being generated and of course renewable energy which is getting cheaper and cheaper all the time so because the power production which is the biggest market for uranium is challenged i have to think the uranium mining is going to be challenged and we've seen that in the last five years we've seen uranium prices come down uranium producers throttle back production and i don't see that turning unfortunately I, I wish I could say say differently, but I, I don't see it turn in. And the result of that is uranium is likely to be stressed for quite a long time. I think uranium prices and uranium companies are going to be stressed. I, I'm sorry about that because Canada has some of the biggest uranium deposits in the world and some wonderful companies and tremendous, you know, great discoveries in, in the Athabasca Basin. But uh, that's just my view. Ross, so we're always on the lookout for talented referrals in this sector. Um, are there any key people in the natural resource sector that you think the audience should pay attention to, obviously, besides yourself? <laughs> well, I, I'm not a talented young guy anymore. <laughs> I'm an old fart. Uh, there's a bunch of people, you know, Andrew. There's a bunch of young guys in the business. I mean, we've got a young guy, Scott Hicks, who's a, who's a really good guy. He's got a great future. He works with us in Lumina and Luminex. Lumina, He's got a little vanadium company going called Strategic Resources that uh, he's he's working real hard on. There's there's a bunch out there. Nolan Watson comes to mind. Uh, Ivan Fayback comes to mind. People like that. They're, they're just they work hard. They're honest. They're driven. Those are those are guys like I I used to think I was you know 30 40 years ago, and uh, and they're worth supporting. They're smart guys and they're going to do well. Well, Russ, we've come to the end and it looks like we're out of time. Uh, is there any parting insights for the audience? <laughs> no, this is yours. This is your party, yeah, Andrew. It's uh, I'm responsive, not uh, not creative here. <laughs> I'm more than happy to uh, to provide my uh, my thoughts uh, to specific questions. But I, I uh, well, if I was uh, going to say anything at the end, I'd say you know I wish everyone well. It's a very very uh, fun business. It's a lot of profits for a lot of people at the right time of the cycle. It's a terrible terrible business at the wrong kind of the cycle, and people just lose their shirts. But Boy, oh boy, if you get in there at the right time and you pick the right companies, it's a heck of a way to build a retirement fund. I can say that as both an investor and as a developer of my own companies. For me, it's been a great career and a lot of fun, and I really couldn't have done it without you know the whole pantheon of support teams from both management, all the people I've worked with, and a heck of a lot of great investors who've 
been part of every one of my companies from the get-go. I couldn't have done it without them. They've backed me and supported me and given me capital, and I just have to give them all my thanks, too. It's like being in a family. You've got to work together to have success, and uh, I, I really feel that, for me, it's been a massive effort by an awful lot of people to have made me look good, uh, and I'm happy to take my success on behalf of so many people, and, and I'm very happy that, to some degree, since all my success has come from public companies, if I've done well, a lot of other people have done well, too, and so it's been a real nice ride. Well, Russ, thank you for the insights uh, and for sharing your wisdom with us. It is much appreciated. Uh, best of luck in all your ventures, and we'll talk again soon. You bet, Andrew. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.